Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Lutheran Public Radio Choir with the hymn, Our Father Who From Heaven Above. During his earthly ministry, Jesus is a man of prayer. He prays often, sometimes by himself. He goes away to pray. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. At one point, his disciples seek instruction. Teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Now, it could have stopped there, but the gospel writers actually record the prayer that Jesus gave them, the Lord's Prayer. Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Join us for the first of a series on the Lord's Prayer. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller, he's pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One, and he's author of a new catechetical resource called Lord Teach Us to Pray. Brian, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. Brian, before we get into today's subject of the Lord's Prayer, given the context of the tragic events over the weekend in Israel, there are already evangelical voices who are saying that this is somehow a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. What do you say? Yeah, this is always dangerous to be uh, reading the Bible in one hand with the newspaper in the other and to be looking for these connections for a couple of different reasons. One of them is because the Lord promises that he can return at any time. And really, from the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD under Titus, the emperor, Roman emperor, there's been no more biblical prophecies to be fulfilled. Paul says it like this when he writes to the Corinthians, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And so the church has always confessed the imminent return of Jesus, which means that he could at any time return for us. And when we start to pile up unkept promises from the scriptures and pretend like there's things that still need to be fulfilled, that really strikes fundamentally at that Christian expectation of the Lord to return any time. In, in other words, just to say it like this, if the war that has started now between Israel and the Gaza Strip and Hamas there, if that is a biblical prophecy that wasn't fulfilled until this weekend, that means that Jesus could not have returned last week or the week before. And that expectation of his return would have been wrong for the people then. And, and we just cannot let that destroy our Christian piety of expecting the Lord to return. The second thing is it's a bad way to read the Bible. There are pictures that the Bible gives in the book of Revelation, in the eschatological promises of Jesus, of how things will be between his ascension 
and his second coming. And that includes wars and rumors of wars. It includes earthquakes and disasters and distresses. And I think it's good that when these big things happen, we think of the second coming. I think that's right. When we hear the announcement of another war or we hear the news of another tragedy, we think that the Lord is coming back. We even pray, come Lord Jesus and deliver us from all these disasters. But to treat these events as like check marks that stand before the end is just an unfaithful way to, to read the scriptures. And it takes our attention off of the point of the Bible, which is Christ Jesus and the repentance that he works to us in the word and the gifts that he gives to us through the word. It takes our attention off of these good and godly things and puts it on other very distressing things. And that's also dangerous to our Christian piety. So better to see these disasters and remember what the Lord says when he answers his disciples. They ask, why did these things happen? He says, look, you too need to repent. So we see these disasters unfolding and we are reminded that we also need to repent of our sin lest the judgment of God would come upon us. Turning to our subject, you say that there's no better prayer than the Lord's Prayer. What do you mean by that? Well, there's a lot of prayers that we can pray. There's a lot of prayers that are taught to us in the scriptures, but there's one prayer that's taught by our Lord Jesus himself, specifically in response to his disciples saying, Lord, would you teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray? And that is this precious, most precious gift of the Lord's Prayer, where the Lord Jesus takes up all the things that we need, all the things that he wants to give to us. It's a comprehensive list of all the troubles of this life connected to the promises of God, and he gives us this prayer to pray. It's such a marvelous gift. Luther talks about it as a gift among gifts that we have the Psalter and throughout all the scriptures, examples of what to pray. Paul has 16 times, gives us examples of his prayer, but this really unique prayer is the one that Jesus says here, I want to give this to you. And so we treasure the Lord's Prayer. I, I think we, we see how the Lord's Prayer is treasured, in that we pray it every time the church gathers for the liturgy. Every order of service, every liturgy includes in it two prayers, the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, and the Lord's Prayer. And that shows what a precious gift it is from the Lord to us. You also say that there's no better exposition or explanation of the Lord's Prayer than Martin Luther's in his large catechism. What do you mean by that? Well, that first assertion that there's no better prayer than the Lord's Prayer, I think you can defend that pretty well. This one, some people might contest that there's no better explanation or exposition of the Lord's Prayer than Luther's, because I certainly haven't read every exposition of the Lord's Prayer. But I can't imagine anyone doing better than Luther does in the large catechism. And I love it for a number of reasons. One, he has this beautiful introduction to the Lord's Prayer that talks about the command and promise, the words and the need for prayer, where he is, as he says, encouraging us to pray and to take up the Lord's Prayer. It's a beautiful introduction. And then he takes each of the petitions and exposes it with an eye toward our need. In other words, and we'll talk about this a lot more as we work through the Lord's Prayer, but Luther has a particular eye on this facet of prayer, is that when the Lord gives us each of these seven petitions and the introduction and conclusion that is the Lord's Prayer, that he is first pointing out to us the things that we lack and the things that we need. The petitions of the Lord's Prayer function to tune us in to our own sin, to our own failures, to our own weaknesses, to our own need, to our own dependence on him. So the petitions first 
are God's word to us, teaching us our desperate need. And then they come as God's great promises to us. Here's the very things that he wants to give to us. So Luther is unfolding the Lord's Prayer with an eye towards each of these petitions being the word of God to us, both as law and gospel, as showing us our sin and then showing us the great generosity of God to us. And I don't know if there's a theologian who had his finger on the pulse of the scripture better than Martin Luther. And so for him to take up the words of the Lord's Prayer and to unfold them for us, it's really wonderful. It's also, as confessional Lutherans, we're bound to this unfolding of the Lord's Prayer because we have it in our Book of Concord. Uh, Luther does it first in the small catechism and then in the large catechism. And this is really unique because if you just look at the Book of Concord, you'll find conversations about prayer, but mostly because most of the Book of Concord is polemical. It's arguing against theological error. It's in a more polemical context. It's a discussion of prayers to the saints or what prayers are pleasing to God and what do we learn about God's mercy through prayer, things like this. But the catechisms, because they're not chiefly polemical, at least they're not polemical against the Calvinists and Anabaptists and Catholics, but rather polemical against the world, the flesh, and the devil, they have a different flavor to them. They're maybe just simply more pastoral in their approach. And so Luther is edifying us in this. He's inviting us into this life of the Christian which is the life of prayer. And it's absolutely tremendous. I've taught through the large catechism on the Lord's Prayer five or six times. Each time there's something new, each time there's something wonderful. There's so much richness there in Luther's exposition that I think it is the best. You said he starts with an exhortation to pray. Why does he begin that way? Well, Luther's discussion on the large catechism starts, he says, well, we've heard the Ten Commandments and the Creed. And we'll remember, Todd, that those are the kind of basic building blocks of our Christian basics, the catechism, we sometimes call it the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. So those three parts are the are the most important texts that the Christian deals with. And Luther says, well, we've heard the Ten Commandments, what we're supposed to do, but these also show us what we don't do, what we fail to do, how we sin, and what we need from God. And the the Creed comes along and tells us what we should believe and what God has done to solve our desperate situation as being sinners and lawbreakers. But we're in this difficult life. And because we can't perfectly keep the Ten Commandments, even though we've begun to believe in the creed and trust in what God has done, and because the devil with all of his power and the world with all of its plots and our own flesh with all of its temptations are always resisting our keeping the Ten Commandments and believing the articles of the creed, now we're in this desperate life, which means we need the Lord's help. And that help is what we're crying out for in the Lord's Prayer. And so the catechism and Luther's unfolding of it situates us in this life of knowing the Ten Commandments, knowing our sin, knowing what God has done. But now we're in this battle, a spiritual warfare, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we constantly, every moment, every day, need the Lord's help. We need his deliverance. We need his care. We need his wisdom. We need his provision. We need his mercy and forgiveness. We need daily bread. We need all of these things. And this sets us to pray, to depend on the Lord, to look to the Lord for all good. That's really what it means to have a God. And so the Christian is, the Christian life is a praying life, but it's hard. It's hard to remember to pray. 
it's hard when we're praying to remember what to pray for. It's hard to find time to pray. It's hard to be consistent in prayer. Whenever I go to confess my sins, I'm all, always, always confessing my own failure to pray and, and to pray as I ought and to pray as I should for my family and for my congregation. It's a perennial struggle for the Christian. And so when it comes to this life of prayer, we also need encouragement. So Luther's going to start his exposition of the Lord's Prayer with a fourfold encouragement to pray and to use the Lord's Prayer as the Lord gives it to us to be used. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is our guest. We're beginning a series with him on the Lord's Prayer. We'll get some general thoughts on prayer after this. Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's written by Lutheran layman Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University. Martin Luther on Mental Health is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting lcms.org slash stewardship. Christological, creedal, confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. At Hope Lutheran Church in Sunbury, Ohio, you will find rest for your soul, strength for the day, forgiveness of sins, and hope for the future through Jesus Christ. Because at Hope, you'll hear the Word of God faithfully taught and receive the sacrament faithfully delivered. This is Pastor Ben Meyer inviting you to join us at Hope for Bible class and Sunday school at 9.15 a.m. and the Divine Service at 8 and 10.30 a.m. Find us on the web at hopelutheransunbury.org. The Biblical Worldview Conference is Saturday, November 4th in Chicago. This year's theme is, For Such a Time as This, Discernment, Boldness, and Compassion. Brian Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will be speaking on gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and sharing Christ in a woke culture. For more information, visit worldviewchicago.org. The Biblical Worldview Conference, November 4th in Chicago, worldviewchicago.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're beginning a series on the Lord's Prayer with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, author of a new catechetical resource called Lord Teach Us to Pray. Brian, what would you want to say about prayer in general before we get into the particulars of the Lord's Prayer? Yeah, well, one of the big questions, just thinking theologically, is what do we think the big picture of salvation is? And I think this is very helpful to, to situate prayer in the right place. If you want, we can go back to the Reformation and see the Reformation as a competition between two pictures of salvation. And the Roman church pictured salvation like a bank. 
there was a treasury of merit and it was all locked up in heaven and the Lord had given the Pope the key to that treasury and you had to do various different things to get access to that merit. So the whole system, the whole shape of the church grew up around the picture of a bank that's collecting and has withdrawals of this merit. The Reformation came along and Luther said, no, look, you've got basically the wrong picture. The picture of heaven is not a bank, it's a court. And the Lord sits on the throne as judge. And you stand before the judge accused of being a sinner. And the Lord comes along as your advocate and presents the evidence of his blood for your innocence. And you are acquitted, you're justified. And so it was this big picture competition between the picture of a bank and a courtroom that really defined that time of the Reformation. And prayer fits into that so that prayer in the Catholic Church was a way of earning merit. In fact, you were praying not only to the Lord, but you were most especially praying for the saints who were there, who had achieved this heavenly perfection so that they could intercede on your behalf. The Lutheran idea of prayer was much different. It was the Lord as the deliverer who is praying for us, and we now bring our own petitions to him to come and help us. Now, that Reformation battle is different than the battle than we face today. I think if you were to look at and say, what's the major picture of salvation that people have in the church today, it would be, well, probably the picture of like a high school prom. And Jesus has asked me to the dance, and now I have to decide to go with him. And then I want to grow in my relationship with him. That's the key word for American Christianity is the word relationship. We have to have a personal relationship with Jesus, which neither of those words are, are biblical words, but they've captured the theological imagination of American Christianity that that becomes the shape of everything that they're doing. And going to church, you wonder why church seems more like a concert. Well, it's because that's when you go to the dance, that's what's there. Now, in that context, prayer means something totally different. So the way American Christianity understands prayer is this ongoing conversation to deepen our relationship with God. Now, there's something right there, but it's only very partially right. And it goes wrong in any number of ways. For example, one way it goes wrong is it makes prayer a two-way street so that I speak to God and then I pause and wait and listen. And then God's word sort of bubbles up inside of me internally. That's never promised by God. We're never commanded to look for God's word that way. It's a wrong understanding of prayer. We understand that in prayer we speak and in the word God speaks to us. The other danger of this relationship idea of prayer is that it takes it into a very emotional place where, for example, if there's prayers that are written down, they can't be true prayers because after all, it's supposed to be this sort of unfolding of my authentic self to God. Well, there's certainly that that happens in prayer, but we also come to the Lord and use the words that he's given us to pray. And one of the dangers of the relationship picture of salvation is that it makes praying a prayer like the Lord's Prayer seem useless or even dangerous. We're worried so much about rote prayer because the point of prayer is not to tell the Lord what we need, but rather to teach the Lord who I am, to show myself to the Lord so that he can show himself to me. And so it fights against the Lord's Prayer. 
Maybe the last thing with this relationship idea of prayer is that you'll often hear American evangelicals say, in prayer, we don't go to God just to tell him what we need, like he's a big Santa Claus. Well, Luther will give us the exact opposite instructions. He said, prayer is asking God for things. It's petitioning the Lord. And the reason this is so important is because Luther understands that our prayer begins from a point of need. It begins from a point of distress or a point of dependence, that there's something that I don't have that I need. And that's really our life of faith. Our life of hope is that we're walking by faith, not by sight. Hope that's seen is no hope at all. So faith and hope and prayer are all bound up to one another because we're asking the Lord to give us the things that we don't have, or at least that we don't see and feel that we have. And so that move away from asking in prayer is a move away from repentance in prayer, and it's a move away from understanding God's mercy in prayer. In fact, it's a move away of understanding Jesus as our Redeemer and the one who gives us all that we need. So we want to understand prayer in a, in a proper way, and it probably comes back to that word petition. Sometimes we, we even see people asking government for something. They're making a petition, and I think that's right. When we come to pray, we're coming to stand before the throne of the king, and he's invited us into his throne room, and he's told us, ask me for whatever you need. In fact, he's told us he's willing to give us more than we would even ask or imagine. And so we stand before him with the boldness of faith and ask him for help in our desperation. You had mentioned a moment ago a fourfold exhortation on Luther's part to pray. Yeah, he starts with the command to pray, which is amazing, Todd. He starts with that. And then he has the promise and the words and the need. Luther spends a lot of time on the command to pray, and he goes back to the second commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so we don't curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. So we see that this the second commandment is the Lord's command to pray, and Luther derives a great amount of comfort from that. There's a mystery here, which is good for us Lutherans to think about, because we normally think of the command as bad and negative, especially in the sense that the law shows us our sin, and the command, insofar as it shows us the righteousness of God, also shows us where we fail to live up to that righteousness of God, and that's true. So there's always something to repent of with the command of God. But Luther loves to see the confidence that is engendered by the command. And maybe to use his favorite example, he'll say things as he's going through the Ten Commandments in the large catechism. He'll say, look, the monks and the nuns would have given their left foot if they had a command like honor your father and your mother because they don't have any word from God that indicates that what they're doing is right. So if we start with the fear of God, and start with the understanding that we're sinners and God is holy and that we're in risk of offending him. But to know that we have to do something, we got to get up and act. We're human beings who are actors in the world. What am I authorized to do? And the commandments of God tell us what we're authorized to do. Now, we might not do it right. We'll certainly never do it perfectly. But at least we know that we're doing the right thing. This is why Luther says something like, when the preacher finishes his preaching, he shouldn't pray, forgive us our trespasses. He doesn't mean that I preached everything perfectly and I couldn't have done anything better to make it a better sermon. No, he does mean that I should have the confidence that I'm commanded to pray. That's what the office does. It puts me into that vocation of preacher 
And so I have the command to preach, and so I should be bold about it. Well, here we have the command to pray, which gives us boldness. Maybe the biblical example is from Esther. It's really great. Here the king is going to kill all the Jews, and their only hope is that Esther, the queen, can go in and intercede. But the problem is that Esther hasn't been invited into the throne room of the king. And if anyone goes into the throne room uninvited, even the queen, the result is immediate decapitation. I mean, they just put you to death right there. Bam. And so there's this risk of life to go before the king and offer a petition unless he raises the golden scepter. But Esther goes in and God be praised, the king raises the golden scepter and so she's able to make her petition heard before. Them. But here's the point. If it's a fearful thing to go before the throne of an earthly king uninvited, how much more would it be fearful to go before the throne of God uninvited? Could you imagine if we didn't have the command to pray? I think, Todd, we'd probably have to do it like this. Like each church would get together once a year and say, okay, we're going to decide one thing to pray for. And we're going to pick one person to pray. And we're going to pick the oldest guy because we're pretty sure he's going to die as soon as he prays. So pick the guy who's closest to heaven already. And let's all decide one thing that we want to ask the Lord for. And then with fear and trepidation, the one old guy would go and offer a prayer before the Lord, hoping that the Lord would receive him before his throne. In other words, if we didn't have the command to pray, we would never be so bold as to stand before God and ask him for the things that we want and need. But we have the command. The Lord says, I want to hear. In fact, you must come before me and pray. You don't have the option. So that this command to pray gives us this great, great boldness to stand before God and to ask him for what we need. And it also cuts off all the devil's temptations to try to prevent us from praying. I think this is great because there's so many ways that we can sort of talk ourselves out of prayer, even theologically. Like God knows what we want. He knows what he's going to do. He knows what's going to happen. He knows more than me. He already knows the things that are in my mind. He hears what I'm saying, so I don't need to pray. Whatever sort of theological things we heap up to prevent us from praying, these are all also swept away by the command. Look, it doesn't matter what your theology says. The Lord says, hey, pray. I've given you my name. I want you to use it rightly. Call upon me in the time of trouble, and I will hear you, and I will deliver you, and you will give thanks to me. So the command to pray kind of clears the way so that we can stand with boldness before the throne of God. You're connected to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're discussing the Lord's Prayer with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One. He's also a graduate of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. To find out about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess, you can go to ctsfw.edu or just call 1-800-481-2155. Forming Servants in Jesus Christ to Teach the Faithful, Reach the Lost, and Care for All. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. We'll begin with the first words of the prayer, Our Father, next. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? 
Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red Journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. The Lord has sanctified us in the true faith. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Memorial Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. You're listening to Issues Etc. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Ben Mays of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Here's what Martin Luther says about the pastoral office. My pastor is practicing the virtue that increases God's kingdom, fills heaven with saints, plunders hell, robs the devil, wards off death, represses sin, preserves peace and unity, and plants all kinds of virtue in the people. In a word, he is making a new world. He builds not a poor temporary house, but an eternal and beautiful paradise in which God himself is glad to dwell. We are calling good men to step up. Come to Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's a series on the Lord's Prayer beginning today with Pastor Brian Wolf-Miller. Brian, the first words Jesus invites us to address God as our Father. What would you say about that? Oh, boy, there's so much there, Todd. The first is it's not my Father, it's our Father, and that Jesus is in some way sharing God the Father with us, which is an amazing thing to do. It, it reminds us of the conversation between Mary and and Jesus in the garden, when he he sends her to the disciples and says, Go, tell them I'm going to, to my father and your father, to my God and your God, so that Jesus, by his incarnation and death and resurrection, has made a way for us to be adopted into the family of God, which is accomplished in baptism. That's why Jesus says, go and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, so that we're given the name of God and it belongs to us 
now. And we stand before the Lord, not as slaves, not as strangers, not even as friends, although that's an important picture when it comes to prayer, but as children. So the Lord invites us tenderly to call upon him as our father, and he as a dear father hears us and answers our prayers. There's so much here. It's. I was thinking of this the other day, Todd, as if you woke up in a coma. And in fact, I heard this news story this morning about a lady who who woke up from a and lost like 13 years of her life. She was lost. So imagine you woke up from a coma and you didn't remember anything about yourself, who you are, what your name is, anything. The only thing you remembered is the Lord's prayer. And you would say, our father. And you say, oh, I have a father. I'm the son of a father. And I have brothers and sisters. I'm part of a family. And that's what these words, our father, in fact, then who art in heaven. Oh, my father is God who lives in heaven. This first word tells us how God wants us to think of himself as our heavenly father. And it also tells us how God thinks of us as his dear children. Behold, what manner of love the father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. Such we are. This is a beautiful promise in these words. Jesus is, in essence, inviting us to address God the same way he really properly alone can address God. Yeah. That verse, we sometimes miss it, even though it's the most famous of all verses in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We're, oh, only son. He, God has one son, and that's our Lord Jesus. He is the, the sole son of the Father. How then can we be called sons? How can we be called children? And that is by way of adoption. We're not begotten. Well, we're begotten in the same way that Jesus is. We're begotten of the word. We're adopted into that family. And the way that we can be adopted into that family is through the uh, salvation accomplished by Jesus on the cross. So that the forgiveness of sins that Jesus accomplishes in his death and in his resurrection and ascension and prayer at the Father's right hand, in that suffering and, and all that he did for us on the cross, Jesus makes a way for us to become part of God's family. And so he says, now when you're praying, I want you to pray the same way that I am praying. That's a prayer with boldness. That's like Hebrews says, we approach the throne of grace with boldness. It's a prayer of familiarity as well. There's really two major metaphors that the Bible uses when it talks about prayer, especially Jesus. One is military, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times. But the other is familial. So Jesus says, what father of you, if your son asks for an egg or a piece of bread, will give him a scorpion or a stone? No, if you, Jesus says, are evil, know how to give good things, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to all who ask? And so this picture of a child asking the father for something that the father wants to give, and that's key, is the picture that we have in prayer. The father who is in heaven. Take us into those words. Yeah. Each of us has, to one degree or another, access to our earthly fathers. If they're still alive and in life had that, but you know, that's limited access sometimes. Sometimes people don't even know who their father is or the father died when they were young or even older. The fathers have gone to heaven. We have kind of limited access and a limited experience with our earthly fathers as well. But when we're taught to pray, it's very different. It's our father who art in heaven So we're praying here to our Heavenly Father, 
to the one who's begotten us through the word and the water and the spirit, to the one who's called us into this heavenly family, to the one whose kingdom is of heaven, and so the one who's bringing us through the troubles of this life to heaven. Probably the Bible talks about heaven in three ways, the bird heaven and the star heaven, and then the throne of God heaven, which is basically wherever God is, where God's rule is. And so this theme of heaven is going to run throughout the Lord's prayer so that we're praying that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, so that the Lord is bringing us through all the troubles of this earth so that we can rest in his perfection and in his glory in heaven. So already all the things that the Lord has promised are contained in that word, our Father who art in heaven. There's kind of a quivering liveliness with that word in heaven, because the Father in heaven is going to bring us to that place as well, to that place where the flesh is cast aside, where the world is taken away, where the devil is cast off, and where everything is full of life and glory and peace. And so there's kind of a pregnant expectation in that prayer already, our Father who art in heaven. How do we know that we are heard? Well, God has promised to hear us, and that's really, as Luther is encouraging us to pray, that's the second thing that he gives. He gives us the command, hey, pray, but then he gives us the promise. And Luther will go to two major places in the Bible to hone in on the promise. His two favorite verses, I think, Psalm 51.10, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will hear you and I will deliver you. And that becomes the promise, first of all, that God hears our prayers, the prayers of his children, and that he answers those prayers. And then Luther loves to point to the words of Jesus when he's teaching about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, ask and seek and knock. Ask and you will be answered. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And and Luther just, he just highlights those words and plants them right in our ears and engraves them on our hearts and says, you live by these words, by the promise that your prayers will be heard and they will be answered. There's a couple of times Luther will unfold that ask, seeking, and knocking in a little bit different way. He doesn't do it in the large catechism, but in his Genesis commentary and in other places, he'll talk about asking, seeking, and knocking as the three, as a pattern that we do. And it goes like this. First, we ask God for what we think we need and what we think he wants to give. And then as we wait for him to answer, if he does not answer that prayer, then we seek, that is, we seek in the scriptures for places where God has promised to answer that prayer. We look in the Bible to make sure that we're praying for the right thing. So as you could imagine it like this, we ask for something and we ask and we ask and the Lord isn't answering that prayer. So then we think, well, am I asking for the right thing? So we go and we just check. Am I authorized to ask for this? Does God promise to hear this prayer? Is this a good petition that I'm bringing before him? And then when I have the scriptures behind me, when I have the promises of God, then I knock. That is, I just keep asking. I'm persistent in prayer. I'm consistent in prayer. The examples that Jesus gives are the widow who goes to the judge who finally answers the prayer, not because he's a righteous judge, but because he's just annoyed by the widow. And the Lord says, this is how I want you to pray. I want you to annoy me with your prayers just to keep knocking. It's like when I was a kid on the road trip with my brothers. I mean, I guess I'd probably do the same thing now if we were on a road trip. You just keep poking them until they finally get in. That's how the Lord wants us to pray, just to keep bringing it to me. 
So ask, seek, and knock. And by that promise, we know that the Lord is hearing our prayers. And with that pattern, we can know and be confident that the Lord is pleased to hear our prayers and answer them. It's often said that God says either yes, no, or wait. What do you make of that trope about Christian prayer? If we begin with the idea that every prayer is an unanswered prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving is, a, I suppose, is what we do when we receive a gift and we thank the Lord for it. So if we take that out, every petition where we're asking God for something begins unanswered because we're asking because we don't have it. We're asking because we need it. And this idea that prayer starts from a place of need, from a place of lack, from a place of dependency, from a place of desperation, from a place of deliverance, this understanding of prayer is foundational to Luther's understanding of prayer and especially the Lord's Prayer. But if we understand that, we know that every prayer starts unanswered, that every prayer starts as a wait. And so I suppose every prayer is answered at least first with wait. Now, the Lord does maintain the prerogative of not answering our prayers. And so we have examples of that in the scriptures. For example, Paul, who's praying that the thorn would be taken from his side, and the Lord says, no, I've given this to you as a gift, and I want you to receive it as a gift. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So we do have examples of the Lord saying no, but the majority of the scriptural exhortation to prayer speaks of how the Lord loves to hear our prayers and to answer them. Specifically, Jesus says, he gives us a parable so that we would not grow weary in prayer. That's an indication that the Christian life itself is a life of waiting, and that prayer, it's specifically, is the cry of one who's waiting. And so it could be true that every prayer is yes, no, wait, but we should just say the answer to every prayer is wait, at least for a while, is wait. And the Lord has us as his waiting people, and that's our chief posture there. So when the Lord does answer our prayers, we rejoice and, and we give thanks, but we know that that the Lord is most often in it for the long haul. And when we go to pray, we know that we're in it for the long haul with him. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is our guest. It's the Lord's Prayer. When we come back, the words, Hallowed be thy name. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. The Gospels report Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Sanctifying your commute with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. 
The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Greetings in Christ. I'm Dr. Reed Lessing, Director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. The Center offers annual preaching workshops for Advent and Lent, seminars on a book of the Bible, and studies focused on biblical stewardship. We also showcase the best biblical scholarship in the LCMS by hosting three-day seminars each summer, featuring a guest scholar. Learn more at csp.edu slash Center for Biblical Studies. Thanks to Pastor Kevin Wendt and Grace Lutheran Church in Destin, Florida, for recently becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. When your confessional Lutheran Church pledges $1,000 to support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc., we'll promote your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. You'll find an informational flyer on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor in 2024. Brian, let's talk about the words, hallowed be thy name. We don't use that word hallowed in any other context. What would you say? Yeah, it just means holy, set apart. Uh, Luther even comments on it when he's talking about it in the large catechism. He says, this is somewhat obscure and not expressed in good German. I don't even know what the good German is, but he says simply, this means heavenly father, help that by all means thy name may be holy. I think the closest we have to hallowed would probably be Halloween, which is similar language. That's all Hallows Eve and has to do with the Eve of all saints. And so we say, Lord, let your name be holy. Let your name be set apart. Here we recognize that the Lord's name is holy by itself. And here we start to see a pattern with the petitions is that what we're really praying for is not that the, God's name would be holy. There's something about the petition that means that what we're asking for is that God's name would be holy with us among us, in us, around us, for us, that we would know that God's name is holy, that the holiness of God's name would be seen and recognized by us and around us. And so we're praying here in this petition that we would use God's name rightly. And his name is connected to his word and his deeds and his spirit. So that we're crying out, as Luther says, We pray to God our Father, it's our duty always to deport and demean ourselves as godly children, that he would not receive shame, but honor and praise from us. In other words, the holiness of his name shows up in our thinking, in our believing, in our confessing, and in our living. And that's going to be the thing that we're asking for in this petition. Why the name? Well, God's name is all over the scriptures, and it's all over the catechism too, but it's connected not only to who God is, but also to what he does. So as maybe a, a nice example is when Moses is being called by God to be the deliverer of the people from Egypt, and the Lord appears to him in the burning bush, and he says, well, who are you? What's your name? And the Lord says, my name is I am. I am who I am. And so God is telling us about himself, that he is eternal, that he has no beginning and no end that he is self-existing, self-sufficient, 
But he's also indicating with this that the people who are nothing, who are enslaved to the Egyptians, who are being abused and demolished, that they will also be something, that the God who is will cause his people also to exist as a people. And so the nature of God is also the character of God, which is also the actions of God, which is also the benefits for us. So the same thing maybe for the name of Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And so Jesus tells us who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, but more that he is kind so that he saves and that we are those saved. We are the people of Jesus. We are the saved ones, the forgiven ones, the rescued ones, the delivered ones. So that the name of God encapsulates his nature, his attributes, his character, his actions, and therefore, because of who he is and what he does, the benefits that come to us. So the name of God captures the whole of the scriptures. If you wanted to reduce the scriptures down to one word, the word would be Jesus. God saves his people from their sins. And so the whole story of the scriptures is just a really long way of saying Jesus, or Jesus is a really short way of encapsulating everything that God does. And that's given to us as a gift of access to all those benefits so that the Old Testament will say over and over again, and this is picked up in the earliest preaching in the New Testament, call upon the Lord and he will deliver you. All those who call upon the Lord will be saved so that the name of God gives us a way to cry out to him. Maybe the example here is, you know, when you drop something and you're walking in the airport and a person's trying to get your attention, but they don't know your name. So you wander off without your, without your hat or whatever. But if the person knows your name, if they, if they don't even have to say it very loud. Hey, Todd. And all of a sudden you turn and they've got your attention. Well, so the Lord gives us his name. And that means I will turn my face to you. I'll give my ear to you. I'll listen to you. So when the Lord gives us his name, he's giving us access to himself. He says, don't misuse it, but use it rightly. And so we're using it rightly when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Many would obviously point out the connection here with one of the Ten Commandments. What would you say there? It's a nice thing to just take the whole catechism and say, where's God's name there? And we see it in the second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. We see it in the creed where we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit confessed. We see it in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. We even see it in baptism when the Lord Jesus says, go and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have it in absolution where we're forgiving sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that the name of God is the ribbon that runs throughout the whole catechism. And it gives us a little indication there in the second commandment that the Lord wants to do more than just beat us down with a rod with the Ten Commandments. So when the Lord says, don't misuse my name, it's like me giving the keys of my car to my son and say, hey, don't abuse it. Now, that doesn't mean I want him to park the car in the garage and wash it and not drive it anywhere. No, it means I want him to drive it. I just want him to drive it carefully. I want him to, to, to behave with it rightly. So when the Lord says, hey, here's my name, don't misuse it, it means he's giving it to us as a gift oh, to be used rightly, not to be used. And Luther will talk about the abuse of the name of God to cover up sin, to cover up unrighteousness, to cover up evil, to profane God's name, to call upon it in support of evil or whatever. No, not to use it wrongly, 
but to use it rightly, which is to pray and to know that God loves to hear and answer our prayers. Brian, before we let you go, what can you tell us about this new unique resource that you've produced called Lord Teach Us to Pray? I'm not sure even what this is. It's kind of a book, Todd, but I've taught through these words, Luther's explanation to the Lord's Prayer so many times, and it's been so nice to do it that I thought some years ago that I should just publish this as a book. So I published the book, Lord Teach Us to Pray, which is just Luther's explanation of the Lord's Prayer. And I'd give it to people all the time and show it to people. and And it was helpful. But people oftentimes, when we would go through it and I would teach it, they would say, it was so helpful your teaching on it, it just kind of unfolded the text really in a helpful way. And a couple of people suggested that I should write a book on the Lord's Prayer. But the problem was it wasn't really me. It was just me talking about Luther. And so I was trying to figure out this problem. How can I have a book, which is like me teaching what Luther says? And so I came up with this idea. Really, Todd, this was I've been thinking about doing this for about eight or nine years which is just me making a video teaching of each page of Luther's explanation of the Lord's Prayer. And then I put a link on the bottom of each page to the video of me teaching. I've been thinking about it for so long. And like two months ago, I finally just woke up one day and said, I got to get this done. So I recorded all the videos and got it all done and got it uploaded, got it ready. So Lord, teach us to pray with video footnotes is Luther's explanation of the Lord's Prayer with a little QR code on the bottom of each page that links to a video of me teaching the words of Luther. So it links to those so that people can, I mean, really, you don't need me. It's great just to read Luther on the Lord's Prayer. That's fine. But if there's something where you're like, I wonder what that means, or I wonder what that's going on, or I wonder what uh, Pastor Wolfmuller thinks about this thing, you can look at that video and you can see a four to eight minute video of me explaining what's going on. And hopefully this is a way to to help people to get deeper into the words of Luther, which then helps us get deeper into the words of Jesus and the Lord's Prayer. So it's kind of three layers of helpfulness to help open up and unfold the gifts that Jesus is giving in the Lord's Prayer. Folks, you'll find a link to Lord Teach Us to Pray at our website, issuesetc.org. Click the Talk On Demand archives page. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One, and he's author of the new catechetical resource, Lord Teach Us to Pray. Brian, thanks. Always a pleasure, Todd. Thank you. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Sean Denzer about the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22. And on Thursday, we'll get a review of the movie The Creator with Pastor Ted Geese. Jesus does not leave us to our own devices. He is the one who ensures that our prayer will be answered. He is the one who answers the prayer, and he teaches us to pray. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Bye.
I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. The Third Commandment teaches us to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We do this when we hold God's Word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Jesus invites the weak and heavy laden to rest in Him, our true rest, because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. This weekend, rest in Jesus as you hear His Word and receive His gifts. If you are in Southern Illinois, you're invited to join Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstadt to rest in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn more at trinitymilstadt.org. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.